Take your Bible and turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34 is our passage this morning. And we are continuing in our study of the golden calf incident. In fact, we're coming to the end of it, looking at the aftermath that followed that great sin and God's glorious redemption of his people. Uh, You'll remember, though, how in one breath Israel said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then in the very next breath, they said, make us gods that will go before us. And they fell deep into sin, deep into idolatry. They forsook the God of their salvation, and they bowed down before graven images. Moses puts it very bluntly. He says, this people has sinned a great sin. And yet, and this is something that stands out so clearly in these passages, chapters 32 to 34, Moses' knowledge of this fact, Moses' knowledge of the people's depravity doesn't overwhelm his knowledge of God. What I mean by that is that while Israel's iniquity is grievous, while their sin is great, Moses knows that this great redeeming God has the power to redeem once again, that God has the power to forgive even this kind of sin, even this kind of fall, and perhaps he'll be gracious and show mercy once again. And so Moses intercedes over and over again. We've seen him pray three times to the Lord and three times God listens. Last time we saw him pray that famous prayer where he says, Lord, show me your glory. And God said, I will. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name the Lord. Well, today we come to chapter 34 where God makes good on that word where God brings to fulfillment what he promised to Moses. So turn your hearts with me as I read from God's word. Exodus 34, beginning in verse 1. Yahweh said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain." No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose up early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as Yahweh had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation." And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. 
And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of Yahweh, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst." You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut their asherim, for you shall worship no other god. For Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters and for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all the males appear before the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel, for I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before Yahweh, your God, three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything, unle- with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning." The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of Yahweh your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And Yahweh said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with Yahweh forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that Yahweh had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. 
And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before Yahweh to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. It is in response to Moses' prayer, show me your glory, that God gives him the fullest self-description, the most complete depiction in the Lord's own words of who he is and of how he relates to mankind that you can find in the entire Bible. It's the covenant-keeping God's account of what you can expect from him in terms of his own dealings with man. So if you're not a Christian today, or you're just beginning to understand who the God of the Bible is, you came on the perfect Sunday. We're going to hear what God says of himself and how he relates to mankind. Now before we get to that, first we see the Lord commanding Moses to cut two new tablets And he promises that he is going to write the same words that he wrote on that first pair. Now that's an encouraging sign. It's a promising sign because it indicates that the Lord's purpose, when he tells Moses, come up in the morning uh, to Mount Sinai, includes Israel as well. He doesn't just have a word for Moses. He has this stiff-necked people still in view in his mercy, as he thinks about what is going to transpire up on the mountain. God is going to restore the covenant that has been broken. It's been broken by the people, and God is going to graciously reinstitute it. So Moses does exactly what the Lord commands. He cuts two tablets of stone. He gets up early in the morning. He goes up on the mountain, and it's at this point you have the climactic point of God's self-disclosure, of God's self-revelation to Moses and to the people of Israel in the entire book of Exodus. It's the greatest answer that the Lord could have ever given to that prayer that Moses prayed, please show me your glory. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to think about this. What did Moses see? We know that he saw something. We know from the previous chapter that the Lord promised to Moses that he would get to see the back parts, the hind parts of God. God uses this, this language that mankind can understand, even though he is, he is spirit, he doesn't have a body like man. But the Lord gives Moses this word and this promise that he will allow him to see some visible manifestation of his glory. But you notice that in the actual fulfillment of that word, in chapter 34, it doesn't describe it. It doesn't describe that experience at all. 
It doesn't give you Moses' eyewitness account. It doesn't give you a single word depicting that visible manifestation of God's glory and presence Moses was allowed to see. Now, what does the Bible say? Where does the scripture draw our attention? It is manifestly on what God said, not on what Moses saw. And so the witness of this text seems to be so clear to say that it was more important that Moses came to understand something of God in his heart and in his mind than it was for him to witness something with his natural eyes. It was more important that that he have something that he could cling to forever about the nature of God, his person, his work, his character, than it it was for him to have some kind of fleeting uh, manifestation of glory that would be here today and then gone tomorrow. Remember that Moses here is yearning for confidence that God is going to be present with him. Remember how he says, if your presence will not go with me, Do not bring us up from here. He's got real anxieties. He's got real questions, just like you and I do, about what the future is going to hold. And he's got the right impulse in those things and that he is running to God with with those questions. He's looking up to the Lord, but the embrace of a right understanding of God, not some kind of dazzling experience is what he most needed. It's what we all need today. The truth about God, that which will abide with us forever, that which will inform every step that we take throughout life, every daunting step that is laid before us. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. The word is what we need. Now, what is laid up for us here in God's excellent word? If you look at verses 6 and 7, the Lord passes by Moses And he proclaims his name, the Lord, the Lord. And when you see those small caps in your Bible for the name the Lord, that's the Lord's covenant name. That's the name Yahweh. And if you're interested in discovering more about why it's rendered in those small caps in a lot of our modern English translations, you can go back and listen to the sermon from chapter three where that name first comes up. But here, uh, the Lord proclaims his name, his covenant name. In fact, he states it twice. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. Often that is used in the scriptures to to arrest the attention of someone. The same way a parent uh, might try to get a hold of their children's attention. Moses, Moses, chapter 3. Saul, Saul. It can be used to express pathos or intimacy. Absalom, Absalom, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Or remember Christ, Martha, Martha. 
That might be the idea here, that it's an expression of intimacy and nearness as the Lord condescends. He draws near to Moses that when God gives his servant here this expression of self-disclosure, he is not just giving Moses a a, a kind of dictionary definition of his name. When he exposits uh, the significance of what the name Yahweh is, entails. It's not for definition's sake. He's saying in this intimate, uh, endearing kind of way, Yahweh, Yahweh, this is who I am toward you, Moses, and to my people. This is who you can count on me to be toward you. Now, saints, what's the first word that the, the Lord uses to describe his nature and his character? What's the first word God reaches for to express all that is bound up in his person and name? It's merciful. Merciful. He's the kind of God who shows pity and compassion on his people. He is kind. This was David's hope in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, You remember where He takes that forbidden census and the prophet Gad comes to him and and he lays out three options of judgment in front of of David and he, he says, well, what's it going to be? Shall three years of famine come to the land or will you flee three months from your foes or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? This is what David says. He says, I am in great distress Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of men. He cast himself on the Lord, his his great sin, notwithstanding, he knew that he had a merciful God. Do you know that, church? He knew that he had a merciful God that he could cast himself to. He says, I've sinned greatly. What am I going to do now? Let me fall into the hands of the Lord. His mercy is great. This is what Lamentations 3 just positively exults in. God's mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Friends, when you woke up this morning, God's mercy were new towards you. They're still new to you right now. In the face of all of your besetting sin, God's mercies are wonderfully, gloriously inexhaustible to you, to you. Second, he's gracious. God's character is such that he is disposed toward doing things and acting in such a way toward his people that are entirely undeserved. The blessings and kindnesses that he shows to us are born out of his benevolence, not our our deservedness. This is who God is. Isaiah 30 and verse, uh, verse 18 says, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. He waits to be gracious to you. This is one of those bedrock bases that the Bible gives us to forsake our sin and to put our trust in the Lord. Joel 2 says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. Why do you wait? Why do you delay? The Lord waits to be gracious to you. 
And then it goes on to say that he is slow to anger. Literally here it says that he is long of nose. An interesting expression to be sure. Probably the idea here is that if someone has a real short, stubby nose, they huff and puff real quickly. They snort a lot. They get worked up really fast. But if you have a long nose, you can take a lot in before anything comes out, if you will. It takes a long time before God's wrath is kindled. And so as the Lord passes by Moses, he tells him in our vernacular, I do not operate on a short fuse. I do not fly off the handle. His proclivity is to be long-suffering, slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. This is that special word you might have heard before. It's hesed. It refers to God's covenant love. It's a loyal kind of love. It's a sturdy kind of goodness that you can depend on, whatever your circumstances happen to be. This is what Jonah whined about uh, when his enemies repented. He said, Lord, this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He said, I knew this is exactly what would happen because God, if there's anything I know about you, it's that you can be depended upon to be abounding in steadfast love. This is something God can be trusted for, that he is abounding in faithful love. He's also abounding in faithfulness. Faithfulness to what? Faithfulness to his word. Faithfulness both to his promises and his warnings, to his blessings and his threats. For, his, for, for this reason, you could also translate this truth, that God is abounding in steadfast love and truth. That sets the stage for what comes in the, the next verse where it talks about the Lord's dealings with sin. And so the mercy and the grace and the love that we're talking about today isn't, isn't a kind of amorphous, uh, squishy kind of love, if you, if you know what I mean. It isn't a, a cheap kind of grace. The Lord is faithful to his word. He can be relied upon to attend to it, both in salvation and in judgment. And we're going to see that here in just a second. And then in verse 7, You see these words, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And the implication there, if you go back and you look at chapter 20, in the second commandment is steadfast love for thousands of generations. And so the the Lord's love toward his people is not an on-again, off-again kind of thing like it can be among us. It's a persevering kind of love. Psalm 78 Verse 35, it says of Israel, they remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer, but they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant, yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. 
He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. So God gives Moses and Israel these five facets of his character that would have been so encouraging, so heartening to hear after so great a fall, so disastrous a sin. Five distinctives that should encourage the hearts of anyone that has come face to face with their own sinfulness. I'm talking about us, brothers and sisters. You realize you stand before a holy God as a sinful man or woman? What does this self-description of the Lord mean for Israel and for us? Keep going with me in verse 7. God says of himself, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now these aren't meant to be necessarily distinctive categories, hard and fast categories, but they do have different nuances. Iniquity uh, gets at the way that man's heart is bent on wickedness. In sin did my mother conceive me, is what the psalmist says. It speaks of our inherent perversity, that we are bent toward that which is away from the Lord, from that which is pure and right. Transgression is what happens when there is a boundary in place and you cross it. That's, that's how the, the law functions often in our lives. Paul talks about covetousness in this way, that he would not have known what covetousness was until he saw the law. And then there was provoked within him this desire uh, to transgress the law. And then sin carries the idea of falling short or missing the mark. It's the broadest of, of these three different terms. Well, in effect, the Lord is saying of himself, in all of the ways that we offend him, God forgives. God forgives us. There are no parameters around the Lord's capacity or willingness to forgive. There aren't boundaries that say, if you do this, there's no provision for you. You cannot be forgiven. No, God reigns in every kind and degree of sin and says, I will forgive it. Meaning, I will bear it away. He will take it to himself and carry it away. It's the very same picture that we come to see portrayed in the, the scapegoat as, as the sacrificial system is instituted. The priest would take his hands and on that second goat, he would, he would lay his hands on the head of the goat and he would confess all of the sins of the people. And then that goat, that animal would be sent out into the wilderness, never to be seen again. It would be borne away which again is prefiguring the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isaiah prophesied, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned aside every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, friends, lest we look at this and think to ourselves that the Lord's willingness to forgive might imply some kind of casual approach to sin or that his grace can be taken advantage, in the very same breath we read these words, but who will by no means clear 
the guilty. And so the Lord's loving kindness doesn't somehow cancel out his holiness or his justice. God by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now there's some qualification that is in order here. We need to understand what the Lord is saying and what, he, what he's not saying in this passage. This is not saying that the liability or the guilt of one person's sin is transferred to another or transferred down across generations. This is not talking either about some kind of generational curse. The Bible says in no uncertain terms, the soul that sins shall die. Now ultimately, that's every one of us. Every single one of us. We all stand guilty before God. We all share, every one of us, the very same need. We need a savior. We need Jesus Christ to come and stand in the gap between us and God and reconcile us, to make atonement for our sins. But the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, Ezekiel says, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the iniquity of the, or the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Ezekiel is talking there about the moral responsibility or culpability that every man has standing before a holy God, the son will not be held morally accountable for the the sins of his father. Now, nevertheless, our sin has profound and far-reaching consequences, not just for our own lives, but for those closest to us, our own family, even family that we might never get the chance to meet. It speaks of our great-great-grandchildren in this text. Now, how does that happen? Well, it comes by way of temporal consequences when we sin. Often that has effect on future generations. It also comes by way of of just learned behavior. Things that are modeled for the generations after us. And so in this context, we need to understand this as an exhortation to, to fathers to walk in the fear of the Lord. To seek to know him to love him, to cherish him first so that our sons learn that. The generations after us follow in our footsteps in in that way. But, But notice this, brothers and sisters, notice what's implicit throughout this whole stretch, throughout this whole passage. It's not as if you have two camps of people here where on one side there's the guilty and then on the other side the innocent. The people who are described in the first half of verse 7 need the forgiveness of sins. They're transgressors. They're sinners. The whole lot, the whole lot of us has that in common. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's everyone in this room. The thing that separates these two groups of people, it goes unstated here, but it's propounded in the rest of of scripture. Do you know what it is? The first repent and believe. They turn from their sins and they put their trust in God, in the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone can pardon sin. 
Paul talked about how he preached repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He talks to the church in Thessalonica about how they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's the hope of the gospel. Don't miss either just the the wonderful lopsidedness of this passage. When you look at the beginning of verse 7 and the end, on the one hand, you have keeping steadfast love for thousands or to a thousand generations. And then on the other hand, you have visiting iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. There's a gracious disparity there. It's out of balance in a beautiful, wonderful, gracious kind of way. And it's not until you, you, you get a grip on the, on, on the latter that the, the beauty and the significance of the former really comes into view, that you begin to understand what the grace of God really is. We might look at this passage and think that, well, it'd be better if God's self-disclosure ended halfway into verse 7, but that wouldn't give us the whole truth. It wouldn't give us the whole truth about God, and it wouldn't throw into the kind of sharp relief that the grace of God carries to those who know it, those who have been the recipients of his love. And so this is, this is a good thing. This serves as a restraining grace, the end of verse 7. Now, what should we do when God makes himself known? What should we do when, when God reveals himself in his word? In a word, we should worship We should glorify the God of our salvation, the one who has revealed himself to poor and needy sinners. And Moses does exactly that. If you look in your Bible at verse eight, he has this instinctual, uh, instructive response. He immediately bows his head toward the earth and worships. And you see, beloved, that the revelation of God cannot be met with non-response. Moses cannot hear what God says and say, okay, well, I'll give that some thought. I'll give that some consideration, Lord. No, he immediately falls to his knees and at once he prostrates himself before the Lord as he simultaneously exults in God, the one who has revealed himself in such a way. Second, he begins to pray. This is the fourth intercession. And again, he's, he's responding to what God has revealed of himself. It's in light of what God just says that Moses says this, verse nine. If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance." He casts himself on what the Lord has revealed about his willingness to forgive. And many of you have sat under only the Lord knows how many sermons. You've heard your parents perhaps uh, speak about the goodness of God and the greatness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But have you gone to the Lord yourself Have you begun to to pray in light of what God has revealed of himself, in light of what he has revealed about his willingness 
to save and to forgive. Moses uses the word of God as the basis of his plea. There's another layer of instruction here as in the way that he takes the people before the Lord as well, the way that he intercedes on their behalf. Isn't it telling the way Moses prays here when he says, pardon our iniquity and our sin? He, he identifies himself with the people. He is a type of Christ. You might even say that, that he empties himself, he empties himself of his privilege and his glory as he takes to himself the needs of his people as their representative, as their mediator. It's what we see perfectly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then finally, he borrows the same language that God uses to describe the promised land and says back to the Lord, take us for your inheritance. Make us your everlasting possession. What does that mean in practical terms? Make us the people you smile upon. Let us be the object of your love. Treat us as your firstborn son. The thing that is so amazing to me about this is that Moses makes this request in spite of the fact that Israel is a stiff-necked people. He doesn't say, Lord, look, they've really shaped up. They've gotten their act together. God, they've turned over a new leaf. We really promise to do better next time. That is not the case. There's no hiding the fact that they are who they are, that this is a stiff-necked people. But Moses says, but because of who you are, God, because of who I know you to be, pardon our iniquity. It's his character and his name that gives Moses a basis of appeal. It's the Lord's mercy and love that enables us to pray to take our needs before him, all our wretchedness. Beloved, this is the path that God has given us in Christ to be reconciled to him, to know his favor and his love. We come and say, Lord, you're the only one that is worthy of our worship, our devotion, and yet I have sinned a great sin. I've gone and served other gods. I've served myself. I'm more stiff-necked than I want to admit I know I have no basis to come to you apart from what you have said about yourself, apart from the shed blood of Christ in whom the only hope of redemption is found. I can't change myself. I can't change my heart. But you can, God. You can. So forgive me. Forgive me of my iniquity and my transgression and my sin. Take me for your inheritance. Lead me in the way everlasting according to your steadfast love. We sang those words earlier. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. You will never come at all. Your only hope is to come to Jesus Christ as you are. And he will forgive you. 
The center part of this chapter summarizes the Ten Commandments. It summarizes the book of the covenant that we saw back in chapters 21 to 23. This is where the Lord's covenant is formally reinstated with Israel. And you see the parties that are involved. You see the terms of the covenant, the sanctions, the blessings, and the, the curses that are attached to it. If you are wondering at this, point, at this point, how in the world is Israel going to fare any better the second time around, you're asking a really good question. And we don't have the time to explore that all today. We'll look at it briefly at the end of the chapter here, but keep reading in your Bible. In short, they miserably fail. They go on to fail again and again, and I hope that you can sympathize with them, not just scorn at them. But they do fail. They go into this pattern of idolatry, generation after generation, and they are constantly proving their inability and their need for a new and a better covenant, the new covenant of Christ's blood. You see the first mention of Asherah poles here in the Bible. And if, you, if you, you've read through the prophets, you, you might know that that's an ominous note that is sounded here because they'll go on to bow before these, these false gods. They're warned not to fall into alliances with other nations lest they become a snare. Brothers and sisters, most of the time when we fall into compromise in our lives, uh, when our lives uh, go off the, the rails, spiritually speaking, when there is false worship and idolatry in our own lives, it does not typically come by way of willing, purposeful engagement in some sort of other religious practice. It comes by way of subtle snares. First, you become allured. You become allured by the promise of security. That's what probably would have been the case here with Israel and, and these other nations or riches or pleasures or whatever it is. But you make alliances, as it were. You, you see things that hold out the promise. They, they say, I can give you what you want, but it's not Christ. It's not the gospel and it eventually gives way to spiritual compromise. It gives way to the indulgence of the flesh. And eventually you find yourself entrapped by these things. You become ensnared. The Lord describes it as spiritual adultery in this passage where he, he talks about whoredom. That's what false worship is. In Jeremiah chapter 31, the Bible talks about that new covenant that came with Christ. And it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. That is why Israel's dealings with those that reject the one true God are to be as severe as they are and those boundary lines so carefully demarcated in their goings and comings. I'll just say as, as an aside that intermarriage between different peoples in the scriptures was never 
on the basis of ethnicity. Moses himself, if you don't know, was married to a Cushite woman. The emphasis is always on allegiance to the one true God. Supremacy, the supremacy of the worship of God in our lives, that he is to have first place. This is why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says that if you are single, you are free to get married, but only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. And so you should never pursue a relationship with someone who is not walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, not, who's not professed their faith in Jesus, lest they prove to be a snare to you. Really, you could summarize the theme of this whole section by saying that Yahweh deserves and demands supreme loyalty in everything that we do. Nothing less is required. He, he tells his people, in plowing time and in harvest, you shall rest during their appointed feast. He says, no one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord three times a year. You can imagine the, the incredible pressure that uh, they would have felt in an agrarian society when the crop was coming in or when they, they felt like they needed to try to beat the weather uh, to get things done out in the field. And then you have the problem of, of going up to the tabernacle and then to the, the, the temple and thinking, well, what if thieves come in and they decimate their crops? God grants them this promise and says, no one will covet your, your land. You set that aside the worship of God, he is, he's the priority. Now verse 29, we come to this, this dramatic scene where Moses comes down off the mountain, the skin of his face is shining, Moses doesn't know it, uh, but the people do. Why does Moses' face shine, young people? Why does Moses' face shine? It's a very simple answer that the Bible gives. It says that it's shown because he'd been talking with God. He had been talking with God. The time of nearness and fellowship that he had with the Lord had a palpable influence on his appearance. It's like that scene in Acts chapter 4 and verse 13 where it says that the religious leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John and when they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. It's less dramatic, perhaps, but it's the same principle at work. Personal fellowship with the Lord changes us. Christ does not leave his people the same. Maybe you know of someone in your life and it is just evident in the way they converse, the, the things they want to talk about, the fruit that's hanging off of their life, they spend time with Christ and you want to spend time with them. It's infectious. You want to, to be around them. Well, in this, this situation, the people of God are suitably alarmed. Moses is holding this new set of tablets, just like the ones he smashed 
at the, at the foot of the mountain 40 days before. No doubt the glory of God convicts their conscience as he is coming down. It pierces their hearts and they can't bear to come close. Moses has to reach out to them. He has to reach out to the leaders and, and, and get the people to draw near so that he can speak to them. Now from that point forward, whenever Moses wasn't speaking a direct word from the Lord, he would put a veil over his face. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is a very important passage as it relates to this. Paul gives a commentary on this passage in light of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ I just want to look at it really briefly with you. I want you to hear what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 12. Paul says this, Since we have such a hope, we, ha- we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. He says that Moses' veil, the veil that he would put over his face, had the express intent of preventing Israel from seeing what was passing away, what would ultimately result in God's judgment on them as, as a nation. In fact, he makes the point of saying that to this day, whenever they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it removed. He's picking up on the language of Exodus chapter 34. Now, of course, when Paul talks about a veil, he's talking about something very different than the kind of veil that Moses wore. He's not talking about an external physical veil. He's talking about an internal spiritual veil, something that lies over the heart and mind and prevents us from seeing the glory of God. How is that veil removed? Moses says, only through Christ. Only through Christ is it removed. Paul goes on, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. You remember how our text says, but when Moses would go into the tent and speak with God, he'd remove the veil. But when one turns to the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, the veil is removed. The scales fall from our eyes. We can look upon God without fear. And it says that that's true of anyone. Whenever anyone, not just Moses, but when one turns to the Lord, That veil is removed and we can see the glory of God. And that's our greatest need. That's your greatest need today is to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And beloved, it's in seeing and knowing Jesus Christ that you have more glory than Moses ever did. Earlier in in the chapter in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? 
He wasn't saying that the old covenant wasn't glorious. It was. But he is drawing a contrast. The old covenant was a ministry of death. is a ministry of condemnation. And that it reveals God's righteousness. It reveals his character. It shows us our need. It points us to the Savior. But if there is glory in this ministry... The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. The tablets of stone cannot change you, but the Spirit can. If what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So friends, the the glory of Jesus Christ has eclipsed The glory of Moses, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. If you've come to God through Christ, you've seen the glory of God. And it's as we behold Jesus that we become like him, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next, just like Moses, just like Moses, just like the apostles. We are transformed by being transfixed on Jesus Christ, little by little, day by day, month after month, year after year, in regular consistent fellowship with the Lord. It's because of this, Paul comes to this wonderful, practical conclusion. He says, we do not lose heart. He says, we can press on, we can make the gospel known, even when it is rejected by those who are perishing. He says, though we are afflicted in every way, we're not driven to despair, When our outer selves are wasting away, our inner selves are being renewed day by day. And so we do not lose heart. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Pray with me. God of glory, God of grace, God, we thank you for your word this day. We thank you that those who look to you are radiant and they will never be ashamed. God, we worship you. Lord, we thank you for making yourself known to poor and needy sinners, for revealing yourself to to stiff-necked, iniquitous people like ourselves. And Lord, we pray that you would do a great work in us. God, we are not content to stay as we are. Show us Christ, O God. Show us your Son, that in beholding him, we might become more and more like him. Take us as your own. God, our prayer is that you would use us to bring you glory as the people that you've set your love upon. God, thank you for your precious Son. Thank you that you have given us a Savior to make atonement for our souls, to pay the price for our sin, to grant the gift of eternal life to everyone who believes on him. And we bless your name and we give you the glory. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.